Hey, good morning, uh, Sojourner. Uh, welcome to another Zoom service. I know that uh, it's been a while since we've been doing Zoom. And so by now, probably many of you, it's like turning on the radio. You know, you just kind of turn it on and and maybe just go do your thing or, you know, try to listen and, um, you know, fall asleep or whatever it is. But, I, you know, I, I still hope that as, as hard as it might be that you, you get something out of it until things do get better, which we're not sure when, but hopefully it does. And uh, hopefully we can pray about that as well. But um, I thought I'd look at First Corinthians chapter eight only because um, because we did restart Bible study stuff, and um, we do want to emphasize that you know Bible study is not only good; it's important. And um, I think for many of us, it's something that I think we 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 need, whether it's an organized Bible study or something that you do on your own, um, just to kind of understand what that purpose is and what goal is. Um, Back in 1597, there was a guy named Francis Bacon. He was a statesman and a philosopher, and he coined uh, probably one of the most more popular phrases that we know today. In one of his works called uh, Sacred Meditations, he wrote in Latin, sentia potentia est, sentia potentia est. And what that literally equates to in English is this, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. And what he meant by that, and oftentimes what we mean by that is this, that the more one knows, right, the more one knows, the more one will be able to control events. That's power. You know, so for example, if your car breaks down and you don't know what to do, then you're in a panic and you're not sure what, what you can do. But if you know what to do, if you have the knowledge of maybe how to fix a car, how to fix a flat tire or whatever the problem is, then you're a little bit more in control. <clears throat> you know, if you if you have knowledge about investments, uh, you know where to put your money and you're a little bit more in control. Um, if you know people and you know how they are, you know how they respond, you know, you know what they think, um, it allows you to navigate that relationship a little better. Um, and that's power. It's a kind of power. Knowledge is power. And, and, and I think this is what we're looking at here in First Corinthians chapter eight. I know there's, there's the context here is somewhat foreign to many of us, but uh, it's, it's talking about Paul's talking about food. And I'll give you a background on what that is really quickly. But really what I want to talk about is is truth, uh, understanding knowledge, what that ought to do, especially for a Christian. Uh, what knowledge is, what's it, what its goal is, um, and how we as people, and maybe not even just Christian knowledge, but, but just any knowledge, what you think is true, whether it's in your relationship, whether it's about yourself, whether it's about the world or, or people, um, how that ought to affect us and how that ought to affect others around us. So let me just give you what's going on here and show you why this is relevant to us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 uh, with regards to understanding knowledge, and that is this. <clears throat> I don't know when the last time you went to the grocery store uh, to, to buy meat, um, but most likely when you went to the store to buy some meat, uh, you probably didn't even pause to wonder if the meat that you have in your hands and that you're about to buy was ever offered to idols, right? That's not a problem that, that most of us wrestle with, but it was a problem that people in this church in Corinth, they wrestled with. And back in these days, there were two places where you could actually get meat. One, you could go to the, the, the main marketplace and you could buy directly from the vendor, but usually that's more expensive. Um, the less expensive option was this, that you could go to one of the many pagan 
religious temples in that city. And there, what they would do there every day was they would offer meat uh, as sacrifice uh, to their to their gods. And what will happen is usually often there were there were portions left over from that meat. Uh, that weren't used in that sacrifice. And so what they do with the leftovers is after the sacrifices were done, they would they would sell it to the public, oftentimes right behind the temple. Uh, and some, some temples, they even had dining rooms, right? Right behind the temple so they could sell their leftover meat and people would just go there and eat it. Okay, so that's the context here. And the Corinthians then, this is a church where people were converted out of those pagan religions and into faith in Jesus Christ. And some of them understood that since there is only one God and uh, whatever pagan superstition might say to the contrary, uh, it, it must mean that the, the, the meat that was offered to those idols, it's, it's just meat, right? And they felt free in their conscience to go and, and uh, eat the meat without a second thought, knowing that, you know, it's just meat, right? But there were others in this church that were probably maybe, you know, more recently converted out of these pagan religions and saw these fellow Christians eating those meats at the temple, and they, they, they were bugged by it. They, 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 they thought it was unthinkable, because for them, eating meat in the temple precincts, eating meat they knew that had been offered to idols, it, it bothered their conscience. You know, it, the, uh, the, the idea or the way they used to live, the way they used to worship, and how they used to sacrifice meat to their, to their idols, even though they're not you know, worshiping those idols anymore, it still affected them. It still bugged them. Um, you know, it, to compare to today, it, it's like if you grew up in church and you knew what communion was, you know, and you knew that, you know, once a month or once a week, you go and, and you get the bread and you get the wine and it, it was meant to be something sacred. It was meant to be something uh very, very special, and you took it seriously. But imagine someone coming up to the communion table, and as they receive the bread, they whip out like a, a, a bottle of strawberry jam and, and some peanut butter, and maybe they just kind of wrap it over the bread, and they eat it, and then they wash it down with the wine. You know, it it, it might offend you, right? It, it might it might bug you because someone's doing that. And this is how some of the Christians in Corinth felt when they saw other Christians eating that sacrificed or the leftover meat from the sacrifices. They had weaker consciences and um, they, they, they wouldn't eat that. And, and so what they thought of these other Christians who were doing this, they said, you guys are, you guys are just, you know, so disrespectful. You're, you're so worldly, you know, how could you do that? And on the other hand, those who were eating the meat, their consciences didn't bother them because it was just meat. And um, it was the cheaper option after all. And so they felt that those other Christians, those other sisters and brothers um, who didn't want to eat it, they were just being uptight. They were saying, you know, you guys are just legalistic, right? You're trying to impose restrictions uh, on my liberty. And, and they felt judged. And so they said, these, these so-called mature Christians are saying to those Christians who were bugged by this, they, they said, you know, you've got issues. You're still tied to the older religion, the way you used to do things. And we're not there anymore. We're, we're Christians now. We're free from those things. And so you need to get past this and learn more about what grace means. Learn more and do some more Bible study about what, what God wants and not what, what these pagan idols want. And so this is the issue that was going on in this church. So on the one hand, the ones who wouldn't eat this meat, they were judging the ones who did by calling them libertarians and saying, hey, you know what, you guys are just too worldly. And on the other hand, the ones eating the meat were judging the ones who wouldn't, calling them immature Christians who lacked knowledge and an understanding. 
in their own faith. Now, here's the thing. That's the background. But I want you to know this. What you see in this passage is this. At least with the issue of eating meat here in this passage, Paul definitely agrees with those who insisted on their liberty just to eat anything. He agrees that, that they were, at least theologically, they were right. They were right that according to God's word, according to the gospel, with regards to this issue, they were right. But at the same time, he disagreed with how they handled that knowledge, that understanding. Okay? And what you see in this passage is this. He doesn't even address so much those Christians who refused to eat the meat because they were bugged by something that they shouldn't have been bugged by. But he primarily addresses those who did eat the meat, the so-called ones who did understand grace. And he addresses them on how they hold on to or they think about the truth or the knowledge that they have. And one of the problems that Paul had with them was this. They lacked love. I've got basically like... Three points, maybe four, just two, but two of them are really quick. And the first is this. For Paul and for the Christian, there's a relationship between what you know, right, the truth that you understand, and love. There's a difference or a relationship between your head and your heart. That's the first point. The second point here we see um, is this. Uh, two extremes you want to avoid. One is knowledge without love is not great. But the second or third point, love without knowledge is also not the greatest thing. And then the last point we'll see here is this, how knowledge, how truth and how love need to work together. They need to work together. Okay. So relationship between knowledge and love, what is that? Between your head and your heart, knowledge without love, love without knowledge, why those extremes we want to avoid and how knowledge and love need to work together, what it looks like. Okay. Practically. So let's look at this very carefully. The first point here is this relationship. There's a relationship for Paul between what you know, right? Not even just in the Christian sense, but just any sense. What you know is true, right? And love between your head and your heart. I think I've shared this many times before, but, you know, uh, the famous uh, football coach Tom Landry used to always say that the difference between a good football player and, and a great football player is about 12 to 18 inches, is the distance between your head and your heart, right? And he's saying that's what makes a difference between a good football player and a great one. And Paul is saying here basically the same thing in our first point, that that distance, 12 to 18 inches from your head to your heart, that's the secret of growing in your Christian life. And this is what it is. No matter how many books you've read, no matter how well you know the basic Christian truth, no matter how doctrinally savvy you might be, all your knowledge, all that truth will be useless to you unless it makes that 18, 12 inch commute and stops being just a theoretical conviction and starts becoming a spiritual reality in your heart. Let me illustrate it this way. I could describe to you a, a, a beautiful apple for example, right? I could measure it. I could weigh it. I could trace its contours. I could follow the, 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 the different shades of red as it ripens. I could read about it. I could, I could study the biology of apples. I could learn how to grow apple trees and, and then how to harvest their fruit. I can even, from this knowledge, recommend certain apples to you or to others. But 
what use is all of that knowledge to me? What's the point of dwelling so intensely, so I mean, accumulating so much knowledge about apples, if after all, I never get to taste one? I never get to taste one for myself. And what Paul is trying to say here is this, that authentic Christianity tastes the apple, right? It's never just content with just knowing about apples. And what Paul wants us to understand is that Christianity, yes, it is knowledge, right? There is learning that's important. You, you do need to study the, the word of God or hear the word of God. It is important. But here's the thing. Those things are not the ends of your Christian life. Those things are a means to an end. True Christian knowledge, true truth, known truly, always leads to a deepening Christian love. It never stays in the mind, but it ought to penetrate to the heart, and it ought to change your life. So for Paul and for us, there is a relationship between what we know and, and love. The difference between our head and our heart, there's a connection there that we need to make, okay? That's the relationship between knowledge and, and love. Now, let's move on to the next two points really quickly. There, there are two extremes that we want to avoid here, okay? Uh, and we tend to lean on one or the other. And the first extreme we want to avoid is this, that you have a lot of knowledge, but you lack love. You know, even in our passage in verse 1, Paul admits, all of us possess knowledge, he says, with regards to this issue. He says, all of us possess knowledge. He's quoting them, right? But then he says right after, but this knowledge, it puffs up, but love builds up. And what he means by puffs up, it means this, it is this knowledge that we have, it, it can make us arrogant, right? But love builds up. And, and so what he's trying to say is this, that the knowledge that these, these so-called mature Christians had, which gave them the freedom to do what they want with the food or with the meat, he says, you know, he even tells us what that knowledge is. You look at verses four to six, uh, it, it, it's the knowledge that idols have no real existence and that they follow the true God of the Bible. But the problem Paul points out is this. They had real knowledge, but it hadn't gone all the way. It hadn't traveled those 12 to 18 inches from their heart. And so this knowledge, it just stayed in their head and it just puffed them up. But he says, love, it builds up, right? And so he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know yet as he ought to know. They thought they knew the truth. They thought they believed in the right thing. But Paul says the knowledge they have basically says it's not fully cooked. It hasn't fully marinated yet. You know, it's like an undercooked meal. Let's say, you grill some chicken, but it's a little raw in the middle, and you know it looks really good, but it's going to make you sick in the end if you eat it, right? And this is what knowledge without love looks like. It's an undercooked meal that's going to be toxic in your Christian life. This is Paul's point, that these Christians who had some knowledge, who had some truth, they were right with regards to the issue of eating meat. And they expected Paul to be on their side, right? They probably expected Paul to address those other Christians who wouldn't eat the meat. They wanted him to say to those Christians, you know what? You guys need to learn more. You guys need to apply what you're learning. You need to get over this eating this meat stuff to, to sacrificed idols. It's just wrong. So don't be so weak. But to their shock, he doesn't address them. He's addressing these mature Christians who knew some truth who are eating the meat, and he's saying this, and he's saying this to us. Here's the point. Knowledge without love, you can 
absolutely be right about something, okay? You can be absolutely sure that you know what's true, but you could also at the same time be absolutely wrong in the way you communicate that and in the way it results, all right? You can absolutely be right about something, but at the same time, you can absolutely be wrong about how you relate that, how you communicate that, how you share that with people around you. That's what knowledge without love does. It can puff up. The other extreme you want to avoid, Paul says, is not just knowledge without love, but you also want to avoid the opposite, love without knowledge. That's not the greatest thing either. Unfortunately, this is the sentiment of our world today. You know that Beatles song, um, All You Need Is Love? Well, uh, Paul's not saying that here. Okay, He's not saying here that, that knowledge and truth, and especially in the Christian term, uh, is irrelevant. He's not playing love against knowledge. Uh, he's not trying to tell you, well, you, you all have knowledge, but what you really need isn't knowledge. You really need love. So don't worry about knowing truth. Just, just love each other, okay? This is not what Paul is trying to say, even though that's a fairly popular sentiment even today. Yeah, I'll illustrate it this way. You know, let's say you, you get a pet, and the only pet you could afford was like a goldfish, right? And you get a goldfish, and, and because it's your pet and you love it, you love your goldfish, you, you buy the bowl, you get the water and the food and all that kind of stuff. You enjoy the goldfish, right? You love it so much that you want to do everything you can to, to take care and to enjoy your little pet goldfish. And so what you do decide is, well, you know, maybe my goldfish needs some fresh air. So you take the fish out of the water, and you take it outside for a walk, right? At least in your hands. And by the time you get back home from your walk after a 20 minute walk you put it back in the bowl and you realize the goldfish is dead right and and, you know it's a silly illustration but but see you know here's the point uh you wanted to love the goldfish but the truth is fish don't live out of water and if you don't know that no matter how much you want to love the pet it's gonna die right love with our truth is not always the best thing either knowledge is important paul wants to emphasize uh Truth is important. God wants you to know, right? And it's so true. You will never grow in your Christian life. You will never grow in your Christian life beyond the limits of what you know from his word and his truth. And, and, and just to be clear, it's not about how much you know. It's that what you already know, God wants you to know deeply. He wants you to know deeply. He wants you to know that God has revealed himself in his word. He wants you to know it. He wants you to learn it. He wants you to study it. He wants you to store it up in your mind and in your heart. He wants you to be able to identify its teaching, see how it all connects. He wants you not just to see the truth, but he wants you to know in a way that magnifies God and humbles you and melts your heart with a love, not just for God, but with a compassion for others in your church, in your town, in your country, even in your own home. Okay, that's what knowledge ought to do. So it's not all you need is love, okay? He's not saying don't worry about knowing and learning, just get busy loving. What he's saying is that no matter how much you know, if it isn't given hands and feet, if it isn't given expression in love, if it doesn't generate love in your heart for God or for others, then Paul says to you in verse two, you still do not know as you ought to know. You may know some truth, 
but you do not yet know truth truly. It hasn't penetrated the way it ought, okay? So those are the first three points, right? Relationship between knowledge and truth, avoid knowledge without love, but also avoid love without knowledge. So then how does knowledge and truth and, and love then work together? You know, there's some of us, and, and maybe you know some people who, who kind of think like this, to know me is to love me. And if you don't love me, it's because you don't really know me, right? And maybe there's some truth to that, but there's something similar that I think Paul says about God. Look at, or listen to verse three. He says this, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And you know what's interesting about this verse? The way you think it should read is, is something like this. If anyone loves God, it's because he knows God, right? To know him is to love him. That's what you would think he would say, right? But that's not what Paul says, is it? It's What Paul says is a little more radical. What he's saying is this, that if you love God, you only love him because he first knows you. Not that you know him, but he knows you. And here you get a glimpse in how we're called to know things about God and about others and how that affects others, right? That the way God knows, he knows you in such a way that it generates love in your heart to him in response. Do you see the difference? As Christians, God knows us uh, more than just a, a list of facts and figures. He knows us with this knowledge of loving, intimate fellowship communion. He, he's drawn us into fellowship with himself by his saving grace. He's showered his love upon us. He's adopted us as a son and daughters. He also knows us in our sins. He knows us in our failures. And even though many times we grieve him and we disappoint him, he doesn't withdraw from us, but he presses in and he perseveres us. He knows us inside and out. And being known like that makes us love him. That's what verse 3 is trying to say. In other words, God knows us. He knows everything. He knows the truth. But the way that God knows and expresses that knowledge makes others love him. Do you see that? Do you understand how God knows things? For God, knowing truth, whether it's about us or anyone else, it becomes other-centered, not me-centered. And I think what Paul is saying is that in the same way that the way we know stuff, the way we understand things, the way we hold on to truth, the way we communicate what we believe ought to result in an other-centeredness. It ought to make others love us. And I have to confess, this is something that I often, I oftentimes I fail in, uh, especially during seminary, me learning and, and, and knowing a lot about the Bible and a lot about God's stuff. It, it didn't make others love me more. It, it, it made others not like me more. It, it brought conflict. I would get into arguments about this is what God is saying and this is what God is, you know, this is what's true. And, and if anyone disagreed with me, we, we would get into these debates and, and it would be long hours and hours of debates over something that really, you know, only certain people really get into. And uh, you can feel myself getting angry and feel myself getting hot. And, and at the end of the day, it wasn't about trying to convince someone to love God more because of the truth. It was really about, I want to show you I'm right. I want to show you I'm right, and then you're wrong. And that brought conflict. It didn't make the other person love me more. The very opposite. It made the other person not like me more. How do you hold on to the truth? How do you handle the truth and what you know in your head? How does that affect others? And 
it's simple. Ask yourself this question. Does the way that I know the truth about God, about Christ, about myself, about people around me, about the world, does the way I know Christian truth so affect me that others are attracted to me? Or are they repelled? Right? Verse 3, the way God knows. You love God. How? Because God knows you. That's how he held his knowledge. It was focused on you. Uh, when I believe I know something is absolutely right, are others made to love me? Or are they going to start hating me or fighting with me? Right? Uh, do I know things in such a way that others who know me start loving me? Because here's the thing. It's possible. You can go around and say, oh, I'm such a mature Christian. I know so much about God. I'm so close to God. You can know a lot about God. You can know a lot about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. You can know so much personally to yourself. And your knowledge will seem to generate this ugly, this angry, this judgmental, this sharp attitude towards other people. Right? They're repelled. Does your knowledge of the truth, whatever truth it is that you do know, does your knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of the word of God, here's a question, does that make you beautiful to others or ugly? Does it beautify your life? Does it make you attractive or and more compelling? And if it doesn't, then maybe, as Paul says in verse 2, you still don't know as you ought to know. Francis Bacon said in his writing, knowledge is power, right? And Paul is saying similar but different. Knowledge is power, but for the Christian, that power is for the sake of others. It's the power to love. That's what that knowledge to do, for to, to love God, to love others. And so how does this practically look like? Uh, well, here's an example right in our passage. This is what Paul says it looks like when you work this out. Paul tells these, these so-called mature Christians who knew some truth, uh, and they, he says, you know what, you're right. Okay, you're absolutely right. You have the right to eat whatever you want. You're free in Jesus Christ. But look what he says in verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, will he not be uh, encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. And here's the point. This is practically what Paul does. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Here's what Paul is saying. This is what he's being practical with, okay? You might be right about any issue. You might have the liberty. You might have the right uh, to do as you feel you can do and, and, and you can enjoy. But gospel power, gospel knowledge, here's what it does. It gives up those liberties. It gives up those rights for the sake of someone else, even if it's only for a moment. And what Paul here is saying this, if the cost of loving my fellow brother is becoming a vegetarian, even for a moment, and let's be honest, to me, that, that sounds like a fate worse than death. But if the cost of loving my brother is giving up the thing that I love, at least for a moment, I'll eat the broccoli. I'll have the salad. Paul says, if, if it's not a sin for you either way, right, and you're free to do either way, then for the sake of the other, I'll give it up for a moment. 
I'll give it up. Why? Because I like you more than I like the food. Right? Now, some of you might be saying, you know, well, why should I do that? I know what's right and, and they're wrong. So why should I give up my right to do what's free for me to do? And the answer is this, because you know God. You know a God who knows you who knows everything about you, and not just every good thing about you, but also every wrong thing, every wrong action, every evil word, every sinful thought, a God who knows the truth about you, and yet what did he do? He gave up his rights. He lost his liberty when he gave up his life for us on the cross, even though we didn't deserve it, so that we might really be free. Now, if this is something that's hard for you to hear for whatever reason, then I'm going to suspect that you have just discovered an idol that still has a grip in your heart. And Paul is asking the church in Corinth, and he's asking us, won't you be able to give up for the sake of others as Christ has for you? Now, let me put an example in our context, because we don't really have a problem, at least I don't think we do, with eating food that's been offered to idols, right? But, but a close parallel, uh, not so much these days, but especially in the 90s and early 80s, whatever, um, perhaps for some of it, it's the use of alcohol. It's the use of alcohol. Now, let me be very clear about this. We have liberty, Okay. We have liberty with the use of alcohol. I think the Bible never condemns the right and moderate consumption of alcohol. Now, I'll be very honest. I think there's some of you here that probably drink too much, okay? But we have liberty, okay? But to be honest, and maybe even some of us in our church, not everyone feels free in their conscience to, to drink, to say like a glass of wine with their meal every evening, you know? And maybe your parents, have stronger convictions about that. And their generation has stronger convictions about that. And, th and there's a reason for that. It's not because they're just dumb and, and outdated and, and irrelevant. It's because of, of their history and their background, you know, especially in Korea. You know, the first missionaries in Korea was were back in the like 1880s and they were missionaries sent from the West. And as they started, uh, you know, evangelizing to, to Koreans in, in Seoul for the first time, uh, they had a hard time because back then, you know, because of stress, because of the situation, because of the economy, everyone was smoking and drinking. And because of those issues and those stresses, there was a lot of physical abuse. There, were, there was a lot of other sins that was tied in with, 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 with that. Um, you know, they, they even thought that going to karaoke, oftentimes karaoke was like just singing in front of TV. But, but associated with that was a lot of other issues, a lot of sins that kind of came along with them at that time. So these first missionaries, they, 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 they decided to come down on that a little bit to kind of cut that out so that they could focus on, on growing their faith. And they did it in a really strong way. But ever since then, that has built into, some say, uh, uh, the, the Korean Christian's understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And so even now, maybe less so, but, but even now, uh, we, we, we still have, our parents still have a problem with, well, their conscience is still bothered by, by a Christian who, who drinks or smoke. Because to them, it's not just about drinking and smoking, it's about all the stuff that came with it back in their understanding of what it came for. So, so they, they had a real problem with that, right? But we know today that we have freedom with that. We have liberty with that now, don't we? A responsible freedom. So what do you do? Okay. And Paul here is saying this. If food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat it, lest I make him stumble. And that means that there are circumstances. 
Those of you who like a glass of wine in the evening, for example, where maybe you ought not to drink. Or you don't just ask yourself, am I free to do this, right? But you're also asking yourself, is doing this helpful? Is doing this helpful for people around me? Is doing this helpful or is it a hindrance? Am I a blessing because of this? Or am I a burden to someone because of this? Will I make my brother or sister stumble? That's a question that a Christian who understands real truth begins to ask. You know, um, I, I'll just give you another example. Um, back in seminary, there was a, a, a Muslim friend who became a Christian. And, um, you know, he was there learning and he wanted to go back to his family, uh, you know, back in the Middle East. And he wanted to share the gospel with his Muslim family. But the thing is, um, you know, when he would hang out with other Christians um, and go to lunch or, or, or dinner and, and there would be meat there, there would be meat. And, you know, he would ask all the time, what kind of meat is it? And they'll say, oh, it's pork, you know, or it's sausage or, you know, it's bacon or whatever it is. And he would always refuse. And one of the Christians kind of talked to him about it and said, hey, you're a Christian. I know you're a Christian. You're not a Muslim anymore. Uh, you know, it's free. You know, it's okay to eat pork, right? You know, it's okay to eat pig meat now, right? There's no restrictions. And this is his response. He says, yes, I know. I absolutely know it's free for me to do that, right? And I also absolutely know it's free for me not to do that. But here's the thing. When I go back home to see my, my father, who's 80 years old, and he's still a Muslim, the first question he asks is this, did you put that filthy pork in your mouth? And I want to be able to say, no, I didn't. Do you know why? So that I will have opportunity to talk to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the moment they know that I tasted pork, they won't even talk to me. They might not even look at me. And so I choose out of my freedom for the sake of my family to say no to pork, even though I know it's free. Do you see what that knowledge is? It's for the sake of others. It's for the sake of others. Let me end with this. We have liberty and we have knowledge and understanding, okay? But here's the point. Love constrains your liberty. My knowledge of the truth and what's right isn't the only criteria upon which I base my behavior. But it's my love for other people and it's my love for God that ought to direct and constrain what I know and helps me to live it out in a way that is a blessing and never a burden. Love directs our knowledge. And if we know Christ, right, then we are to love as Christ loved. And how's that? That there are times where we give up our rights, even though we might be free. So let the truth that we understand about the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ travel those 12 to 18 inches from your head to your heart and bear the fruit in the way you serve to the glory and the praise of God. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for